0: We're concluding our journey through the book of Ezra today with chapters 7 through 10. This is the story of Ezra. The whole book is named after him, but his actual part of the story begins in chapter 7. He arrives in Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes' reign. This is most probably King Artaxerxes I, so this is 458 B.C. In verses 1 through 10, we have a long genealogy that establishes Ezra as being in the line of the high priest. Yet they call him a scribe. Only 1 to 2% of the people would have had this ability to read and write. These skills would have made him quite valuable and in demand. He would have been used for composing official correspondence, um, maintaining official records, inventories, and accounts. Being also a priest, he would also have clerical authority, and he might from time to time be called on to copy scriptures or write official letters for um, for the temple. Ezra discerns his call as being to restructure the community according to Moses' teaching. He's called to lead a revival and renewal movement. This is very much the same calling that John Wesley experienced when he founded the Methodist movement. Notice the order here. First he studies to understand, then he applies it. He practices it personally. He puts into action what he knows and understands. And then third, he instructs others. So very often we want to instruct others before we have full understanding. That's why I'm always suspicious when people write books on marriage or parenting or faith or leadership when they're young. I want to hear from the ones who have done it, who have experienced it, who've walked through difficult times and have learned, they've walked it themselves, and now they want to help me do it well. Ezra's gift is going to be to reinterpret the law of Moses for a new generation. The needs of those leaving Egypt were vastly different from those of the returning exiles. They must come to terms with the loss of their former glory, um, with ethnic difference, and with imperial repression. They're just going to be realities of their existence for now. In verses 11 through 26, Artaxerxes' Aramaic decree gives Ezra and the construction of the temple imperial authority. No taxation of religious officials here. The giver, They're given political and governmental authority as well to run and rule the area as deemed by the law of Moses. They would still be under the empire, but as long as they didn't violate or rebel against the empire, they would be allowed to operate as they wanted to in Judea. In verses 27 and 28, we see that Ezra credits God and proceeds obediently. In chapter 8, there is a migration. There are 12 lay families, two priestly families, and we see this in verses 1 through 14. In verses 15 through 20, Ezra doesn't doesn't head back to Jerusalem until he has all the temple administration roles filled. He has to go to extra lengths to get a Levite who wants to go home with them. So he gets the family of Sherebiah, 18 of them in all, including the sons, to make the trip home with them. Verses 21 through 23, Ezra believes that their success depends on God. And asking for human protection would undermine this assertion that God is protecting them. Now, whether it actually does or not is not the point. It's the fact that Ezra thinks he would be compromising his faith if he asked for protection for the journey. So they fast and they pray before they launch out on this adventure. Verses 24 through 30, there's danger involved in transporting this amount of wealth from one place to another, especially doing so without military protection. So he scatters all of the wealth into the care of the many. Instead of carrying it in one load, like in the middle of the caravan, he puts some in in each of the group's things so that if they're attacked, some of it gets away at least, and it, it would make it more difficult to capture all of it. Even before the journey begins, he requires the leaders to demonstrate evidence of their faith, that they have a lack of corruption, and that they have a willingness to take on some risk for this adventure. Verses 31 through 36, they make the journey, facing attack and ambushes, but they are not, the attacks on them are not successful. They arrive with all that God has entrusted to them intact. They worship and they settle in to complete their mission. In chapter 9, this chapter then becomes the climax of the book, the pinnacle of the story. Ezra denounces mixed marriages. The listing of people groups in verse 1 no longer exist for the most part. Um, They have faded into the background and been absorbed into other people groups. But he's making an allusion back to the original Exodus and the taking of the promised land. He is saying that they have not learned from these mistakes. They were not supposed to mix with the other Canaanite peoples. They were supposed to expel them from the land and live in it themselves. Um, he uses the word abomination. Abomination usually refers to religious unfaithfulness, often to worship acts of another God. And so he's likening these mixed marriages to being unfaithfulness to God. You're failing to worship and honor your God by marrying people that he's told you you shouldn't. In other places, Um, Foreign marriages are affirmed in the Bible. Aaron and Miriam are punished when they criticize Moses for marrying an African woman. In Numbers 12, he takes a wife from Cush. They don't like it um, and they get punished for it. Ruth is a Moabite and she marries Boaz after her first husband dies and she returns to Israel with her mother-in-law. And that marriage to Boaz places her in the ancestry of David and then in the ancestry of Jesus. Ezra's mission here depends, though, on consolidating this group into a single ethnic group and one that has a single cultural identity. This is one way to accomplish faithfulness and unity, um, is to make everybody homogenous. Perhaps those who have not assimilated are foreign still. Because when I read through Scripture, I don't see God objecting to us marrying outside of our ethnic group if we share a common faith. So the issue may be that they've married people from other ethnic groups, but those people have continued to worship other gods and to live in other ways. They brought their cultural expectations with them, and that is not accepted. God's people are to worship God and God alone. In verses 5 through 15, Ezra prays. Um, this is a public prayer, and it is a strong lament here. Um, Ezra flattens out the moral standing here. He applies this to all. It's translocational, both for Babylon and Jerusalem, and it is transhistorically, both our ancestors and on this day. So he brings it all together together and makes it one. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, Ezra leads repentance for the decision to intermarry. Shekinah goes further. He lets and says, let's put them away from us. Let's divorce them, reject them. And Ezra agrees with him. In verses 6 through 8, not everyone, however, agrees with this move. He has to compel some of them um by threatening that they will come under great penalty. If they don't, they will forfeit all that they have and they will be banished from God's people. So they are being forced to choose between being part of their historical ethnic group and practicers of their faith and being faithful to their religion and their wives and children. In verses nine through 15, um, the people are terrified. Um, Even creation seems to be weeping with them. There's heavy rain as this happens. Um, They decide to handle this in the localities rather than centralized in Jerusalem. And it turns out that only a few oppose this, four people. In verses 16 through 44, he lists by name all of those who had foreign wives, and they send them away along with the children. I warned you earlier as we started the podcast on this book that I was going to need a little time here at the end of this one for a little bit of a rant. And that's why the one last week was only on chapters five and six, and it became quite short. But this book of Ezra absolutely horrifies me. I am not at all convinced that that this story is retained as one that should be a story that is lauded and emulated. Um, the idea that they cast away these women and these children just strikes me to the core. Let's remember that women and children had no real sense of agency in the, in the ancient cultures. These women are now losing their place and their security. They no longer have a home. And they're being sent away. So they can go back to their peoples, but when they go back to their ethnic group, they may or may not be accepted. They're coming in with these mixed ethnic and racial children. Um, What will they have to endure? Like, there's a part of me that thinks it might would have been a greater kindness to have just killed them than to have exiled them. It also seems to me that we learned nothing from the incident with Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael, like he puts away Ishmael, and we have this tension that comes that they're still fighting in the Middle East today over the Isaac and Ishmael split. It, it just absolutely horrifies me. I wonder if this is the reason that Ezra and Nehemiah are no longer a single work, a single book in the Bible, why they were divided. Was it to highlight this, the, the mass divorce and exile here, um, as something that we should learn from and be horrified, and then we can be less horrified by Nehemiah because Nehemiah seems to be a good leader. He, however, lets this happen, and in, in the book named for him, we kind of gloss over this. This is what happens when fundamentalism rises. I believe it's a cautionary tale. Ezra is well-intended, but he's, he's wrong. Um, Shekinah is wrong with this idea, and faithful leadership should have said, no, we have to honor our promises. We married those women. We had children with those women. We have an obligation to take care of them, to not put them away. Um, however, if they didn't convert, if they are not practicing the faith of Jerusalem, if they're not learning the language, if they're raising those children with those other beliefs, that needs to be worked out. But I don't believe that expulsion was the only way that could have been worked out. They could have gone through this and saying, we're going to be faithful. And if you choose not to be faithful, then you need to make arrangements to go somewhere else, maybe. But this story just absolutely baffles me and blows me away. Uh, He's using only the law of Moses. That's what he has rediscovered. So he's using only like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He's not even using the story of Moses' own life in the story of the Exodus with him taking a foreign wife. He's not using... The stories of creation, he's not using the stories of Joshua or Judges or any of the things in Kings or Chronicles or any of the prophets, especially Jonah, who is sent to be a prophet to try to save an entire race of foreign people. And I am reminded that without the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit, law becomes a battering ram. It becomes a baseball bat, and it can only be used to beat up, beat down, and destroy. Rules become legalism. They become law, and that's why fundamentalism is, is dangerous. We can move. It's like we need to be faithful. We need to be pure. We need to follow all the rules. Here's all the ways to do that, but there's always another way to be more faithful, there's You always have to be finding another sin that must be gotten out, and you become hard and cold and bitter and mean and cruel, and that is what we see happening here. First Corinthians tells us, without love, we are nothing. So this story breaks my heart. Um, it appalls me, and I do not think it is something to be held up. I think it is a cautionary tale against fundamentalism, and That's my rant. I believe it is retained as one of those stories that we learn from, not to emulate, but to avoid. But that takes us through the journey of um, the book of Ezra, and you've now heard my feelings on it. I wonder what yours are.